welcome to the game of crowdfunding interview edition recorded thursday april 17th 2014 got an interview for you here we're going to be talking to somebody with a kickstarter going on right now about the middish way so we're going to talk about how the project's going and what that project is who is joining me on skype today Hey, I am Jared Berry, uh, creative director and lead designer um, over at Mad Ape Games. Lead designer on the title Clash Dawn of Steam, currently on Kickstarter right now. Yes. So we will be talking about Clash Dawn of Steam. But of course, as always, before we get there, Jared, I've got some warm-up questions for you. And, and then when we get past that, you know, we'll just have a conversation and, and get to know you and, and how Mad Ape Games came to be and all that good stuff. So how does that sound? Yeah, sounds real good. Thanks again for me on. Oh, no problem. So, first, warm-up questions. All right. What makes you a geek, sir? Oh, what makes me a geek? I would imagine the uh, amount of money that I spend out of every paycheck on uh, gaming uh, paraphernalia, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I've just always uh, had an aptitude to fantasy-type stuff. Uh, when I get going about... Uh, you know, geeky stuff to people who aren't really geeks. They tell me that I have that kind of glossed over look in my eye as they uh, can't comprehend what I'm explaining. Okay. <laughs> and then besides designing and working with Mad Ape Games, uh, what do you do for a living, sir? Uh, yeah, I do uh, graphic design in a print shop. So I kind of do uh, handle big print orders and uh, designing business cards, designing all kinds of corporate identities, all that fun stuff. And then, do you have any passions that most people would not consider geeky, but you have a geek-level passion for something? Yes. I've been told that I have an obsessive uh, personality, which goes a long ways in, in gaming hobbies. But if I had to pick an obscure passion of mine, I would say that it's uh, probably the National Hockey League. I really like hockey a lot for someone that lives in California. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm all about the San Jose Sharks, big time. <laughs> it's it's unfortunate my uh, normal co-host isn't here. He's a uh, Canadian, and and I get to hear all about when uh, hockey is on, uh, when the playoffs and stuff are on. So yeah, first game tonight. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you have an artistic side already. Yeah. From that, how do you make the leap to decide that you want to design games? Well, I mean. Actively, I'm playing games probably four nights a week or as much as I can without upsetting my girlfriend. <laughs> so generally, I, I just, uh, me and my friends, we just got the idea that, you know, maybe we could uh, try to put out some titles and uh, just start working on some games. Originally, that's where it started. We were just, you know, jotting down ideas in notebooks and eventually... Clashed on a Steam kind of uh, came into existence, and over the last about year, year and a quarter, we've just been trying to really develop it and spend lots of time on it and put the other ideas kind of in the back of the notebook for now. It just kind of, uh, doing graphic design for a living, it seemed like we were already part of the way there um, in, in putting together prototypes and putting together all kinds of things, uh, promotional materials and things like that. It seemed crazy not to try it. So you guys are working on this game. Uh, it, it sounds kind of like almost like a, a side project, this and some other things that you were working on, and then Clash kind of stuck with you. How do you go from, in your instance, how, how do you guys go from, hey, we've got an idea, hey, let's, let's make this game, and I'm assuming like a lot, a lot of us is like, like, hey, this is a cool game that we can play. You know, it, it usually starts internal. Yeah. How do you take that from that to, going, you know what, guys, we've, we've got something here, and then kind of rolling into how does Mad Ape Games come into play from that? Yeah, so pretty much the idea was just to see pretty much how far we could take it uh, was the main idea. It was just uh, we had all of these rough ideas that we were just kind of playing around with and you know taking to the local game store and getting as many people to try as we can on game nights. And um, then from there, we just decided that uh, people were sort of liking Clash Dawn of Steam more than our other games at the time. Not to say that they aren't swell or couldn't become more in uh, in the future, but it had a, a good reception. 
And so we just decided to uh, push it and just to, I, I decided to start kind of uh, putting away a little bit of money out of each paycheck to get something done on the game. And that's kind of been my, uh, my creed for working on Donna Steam is just to try to get something done on the game with every paycheck. And if I'm not, at least put away some money so that on my next paycheck, I get something awesome done. When does the conversation start happening where you actually form Mad Ape Games? I mean, where, where does that come into the, the play here? Yeah, we just decided to do it. I mean, it was, it was kind of like, it was like, okay, so are we going to be serious about this or are we going to keep it kind of uh, under the table and hidden? And at um, at some point, probably about a year ago, we just decided that we should uh, we should come together as a as a group and uh, try to uh, get some titles out there and just uh, get some uh, recognition for the for the brand. And then uh, hopefully, after Clash Dawn of Steam launches successfully and people have uh, these awesome games out there and they can see how high the quality is that we're putting out there and that we're striving to have the highest level of production quality that then it might be a little bit easier to jump into our next game even. So how many people are behind Mad Ape Games then? Because you keep talking, you, you keep saying the we, so I'm assuming there's there's multiple people behind it at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So the people who are local to the Sacramento area, there's only three of us actually. The rest of the people, um, they all work remotely. But uh, in the Sacramento area here, it is mainly the three amigos. Me, my friend John, and my friend Tony. And uh, we are kind of the core creative minds and, and some of us more uh, on just play testing. I mean, John, he, he gets the credit because he will sit down and play test the game every week. And so I, I would be a fool to leave him out of the company for that. But we have uh, all kinds of other people on board. Uh, I've brought on, I have, I think, five or six artists on the team right now uh, from all around the world. I have a writer, Daniel Asuna, and he is awesome. He is, that was one of the best decisions that I've made is to bring Daniel on. And he has really taken the project to the next level. You say you brought on a writer and I actually, that's kind of a cool thing. And, and I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little bit just because this has been kind of a curiosity of mine as well. I mean, do you guys have like the clash realm or clash environment, like Bible that you guys, do you have kind of that world built out somewhere? Yeah, so so the world of Assyria is pretty much my baby. John and Tony both have their own babies right now. They're kind of uh, hidden away until a later date that they uh, that they have their little uh, notebooks full of ideas for. But Assyria has always been uh, my my brainchild, and the, the idea of it just stemmed from a world that was a fantasy, traditional high fantasy type setting that is then through a sudden burst of magic launched into an industrial revolution type of uh, setting. All of the problems and uh, things that go along with that and the questions that that asks about those characters and the places. So you've got uh, a fair amount of that world and that environment kind of mapped out already. Oh, yeah. We, we've even um, we've dabbled a little bit in doing some Pathfinder campaigns that I like to run where uh, we just kind of homebrew it in the world of Assyria. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Great fun. <laughs> First of all, Clash is kind of going to be your flagship game for Mad Ape Games. This is going to be your first product, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. So do you have a design process at this time? Yeah. So the design process was kind of actually laid out during Clash Dawn of Steam. And my design process is pretty much to accept as much feedback from the gaming community as possible. Just to be super open and share every little thing that we do, you know, via board game geek forums and just see what the community thinks, you know, involve the community in the in the design process. And really, ever since we started doing that, the results have just been exponential in the the, the, uh, the ceiling on the creative, I guess, just the creativity of the project. Okay. But before you can bring it there, you've, you've got to have something to bring forward, right? So do you have a set process before it becomes public or is it dependent on game or is there somewhere you like to start? Yeah. The creative process, I usually like to start. I'll, I'll jot down ideas in a notebook. I'll kind of think about some games that I would like it to be a little similar to or just some mechanics that I like, even some, some core mechanics for the game. And generally I try to keep it as simple as possible. 
very streamlined and then add things in from there. And, and mainly that was just, since this is our first game and this was most dauntingly the first rule book that we've had to put together, we tried to just keep it as streamlined, as simple rules light as possible so that it would be easier to teach to people, to new players, easier to learn, just the whole thing. I mean, down the line, we'd really like to put out some, you know, super complex Twilight Imperium type games, but we just wanted to jump in and get our feet wet before we kind of did that. Was Clash, was it ever potentially going to be a CCG or did you always know you didn't want to be a CCG and you wanted to be more contained? Well, from the start, really wanted a, a non-random kind of a format for the game, just because uh, everything that I've done research-wise just points that people don't really want to play a CCG from a company that's not a massive titan of a company. Um, it just, it feels dangerous, I think, to a, to a consumer or a player to, to spend all this money on this game that could just disappear. Yes. So we just really wanted to go, you know exactly what you're getting in each box. You're not chasing uh, this card. We, we don't want there to be this perceived value of our cards where where, you know, one card is worth $50. That's just, it seems ridiculous to us. I mean, not to say it's not valid for other systems, but for our system, we wanted to definitely stick with the non-random route from the beginning. And I think that was a smart decision. I I just know, I I know a few other projects that are either potentially coming up or uh, have have already launched or are already passed, but I know some of them from talking to them early on was they started off the CCG route and kind of got talked out of it. So I didn't know if maybe you had that same experience, but it sounds like you kind of knew that going in up front while you were still designing that that wasn't what you wanted clash to be. Yeah. It just, I mean, it's a hard sell, I think to get people to buy booster packs. I mean, we're already an unknown coming into things. So we just wanted to have everything as fleshed out and uh, you know, a full product in front of people so they can kind of, get a taste of the quality that we're trying to bring. Yeah. Putting TCG or CCG on your project is almost an instant killer. (laughs) Yeah. I would agree with you on that one. (laughs) So yeah, I I just, I found it curious. I just wanted to ask if, if you ever had that, cause you know, I'm assuming you kind of come from a a card playing background a bit as well. Yeah. the, The funny thing about it is if I had to pick one game type that I've played with the majority of my time, it's actually wargaming. I'm a huge wargamer. I've, I, I've been playing war games maybe 11 years and war games are always my go-to and, and card games and board games are kind of the thing that we're doing on the weekends for fun, you know, when we get together. But, but that's really my, my big passion is, is wargaming. Um, so I, I've just tried to bring a lot of the things that I've learned and seen from different war game systems and kind of combine that with the things that I've seen from different card game systems to try to give you the best of both worlds a little bit, you know, with the dice rolling and things like that. A lot of times I'll, I'll talk about lessons learned from Kickstarter towards the end, but uh, I almost want to kind of get into it up front before we start getting into the meat of clash, because this is actually your relaunch for clash, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So coming into it for a second time, what lessons did you bring out of running your, your first campaign? Yeah, definitely. So uh, on the first campaign, we didn't have the whole game fleshed out. We didn't have everything there. We had a base rule set and we had uh, two roughly playable games. We didn't have very much together in the, in the professional uh, full product type sense of things. So coming back into it, we just decided that we would pay the artists, pay the writer, just just do it out of pocket, out of passion and belief for the project, and just know that if if we could uh, get the game to the spot where we envisioned it in our mind, that other people would see that and they would have a good response to that, I think. So did you have like a lot of social presence and stuff on the first campaign? See, on the first campaign, we, I, I did not do very many things correctly on that first com- campaign. It, it really, um, thanks to the community, I, I really tightened everything up definitely exponentially on that one. Um, you know, just through various Facebook groups and posting on Board Game Geek and just the first one, the first campaign, I was not very open to critiques. I was like, this is my brainchild. I don't want you to ruin it. And then right after that, I became completely open to feedback and that's been just 
the the main change is just people and, and through that feedback, the game just keeps getting better and better. So it's almost foolish to ignore that feedback that's there from, you know, a lot of these people are also game designers. A lot of these people are also, you know, game publishers or at the very least, just they play a lot of games. So why why would I just discount their opinions off the bat? Yeah. So, OK, so it sounds like you went through the my baby syndrome. Yeah. Which, uh, we do see, we do see a lot. I run into that quite, quite a bit where I just at some point go, okay, I think I'm done giving feedback because we're argue, you're trying to argue with me now. And I'm not yeah. as, I'm not as vested. I, and that's the one thing to potentially for designers and stuff to remember. If you're asking somebody that, you know, this is the first time they're seeing your game. They're not as vested as you. You have an emotional attachment where they have, they may be looking at it in a more logical, critical way. And I just kind of go, all right, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's yours. And, and that's really my belief. I can tell you, I can give you my opinion, I can give you my feedback. End of the day, you've got to decide what's best for you, but I'm not going to argue with you over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of crazy, actually. You see it in a lot of the Facebook groups and stuff. And I, I think that that's uh, one of my big things that I try to tell people who also are trying to, you know, publish their first game or just design their first game is just accept the feedback. It really will go a long way in bettering your project. And I believe that's where you and I first kind of started having conversations as well was one of the Facebook groups that we're both in. Yeah. When you were trying to, I, what, were you trying to get more reviews at the time or was that what, uh, what it was? I think that at that point I was just posting the uh, Kickstarter campaign early mm-hmm. to try to get, you know, as much feedback from other people as I could try to make sure that it was the best it could possibly be. And then I think we just linked up from there. Yeah. So we talk about that quite a bit on here as well. And if, if somebody hasn't gotten that point yet from all of the conversations that we've had, let me just put it out there one more time. There are a lot of great groups out there. There are a lot of great areas to get feedback that you'll get honest, critical feedback. You've got to filter it yourself. Yeah, correct. <laughs> for your project and, and if it makes sense for you, but you will get the feedback. And there are a lot of groups on Facebook. So if you're not on Facebook for one reason or another, I mean, I know some people have an aversion to Facebook. Yeah. It's, it's worth it if you're really thinking about getting into the Kickstarter process just to be there and to soak in some, I mean, even if you can just read and, you know, we talk about hitting James Matthews blog, we talk about hitting Jamie Stagmeyer's blog, but even the Facebook page pages and some of the groups and I've, you know, some, some of the people that I consult with, if one of the first things I do is list off the places that they should be involved in. And that's what Jared's kind of bringing to the table here is that first time around, Eh, he, he, he kind of wanted to blow it off. Now the second time around, he's taken in that feedback and the project is thriving because of it and is, is better because of it. So they're definitely worth checking out, especially if you are thinking about using the Kickstarter process. Yeah, certainly. I, I have to say, um, you know, the Stegmeyer blog and James Math's blog, those are, um, insightful, eye-opening. I, I would almost put them, no, I, I would certainly put them on must-read status if you're trying to uh, launch a game via Kickstarter. Definitely. Yep. They're they're uh, highly recommended a- across the board. And I should reach out to Jamie again. It's been forever since he's been on the show. But, you know, and we also, you know, there's, uh, you know, again, we'll just give the resources. Uh, Jamie Stagmeyer's blog over at StonemeyerGames.com. JamesMatthew.com is a great blog. Funding the Dream, listening to Richard Bliss is always good. And of course, you're already here, but the game of crowdfunding where we talk to people and, and get lessons. So those are all excellent resources to kind of do your initial research. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with you on that one. Okay. So you went through, you, you got extra feedback. Was the feedback you were getting, was it strictly just on how to do the Kickstarter or did the game improve as well? Did you, did you get extra feedback on, on what was going on with the game? Yeah. So the game actually got better, not really through that same feedback process, but through a uh, board game geek forum, we uh, ended up finding a bunch of people to do some blind play testing for the game, maybe like four or five months ago. And, and through that, the game even evolved a little bit from just that blind playtesting on little ways that it could get a little bit better. Um, you know, with a card game, there's so many variables that need tweaking and balancing. So it was definitely good in that sense to kind of balance out some things. But also the core mechanic 
of the uh, character combat value where you're spending it to modify dice, that was actually added in via some of the blind playtester feedback, Okay, which is really helpful. And I think that that really is an aspect that takes the game to the next level, in my opinion. So was that the first time that you had utilized blind playtesting in your process? Uh, yeah, it actually was. Okay. So, yeah, that's one thing that I always kind of like to point out because there are some people that'll say, well, that's, you know, I don't need to blind play test. And I always think you definitely need to blind play test. Oh, yeah. Because you're handing it off to people that, you know, if you play test with the same group and you're the one showing them how to play, they're going to play the way you tell them to play. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So things like especially when you get down to how your rule book should be laid out, if it makes sense to somebody who's picking up and reading it. Uh, and the questions that will come out of somebody with you not sitting there or if you are just sitting there quietly taking notes. I've done that blind play testing as well, where I've been sitting with the designer. He won't answer questions <laughs> unless we're like way, way off. But he'll sit there and take notes. And that is just such a valuable thing. So it's it's cool to hear that you got to get into blind play testing and also see how valuable it is in your design process. Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely agree with you. I mean, there's there's just something to be said about not being right there to, to show the person how to play and them having to just figure it out, opening the box up. And and you'll catch things that you definitely wouldn't catch otherwise. And and you would think you would because you're you're spending so much time on this project, but then it's like you get you're looking at it with a magnifying glass and you need to be looking at the bigger picture. But which sometimes it's hard to do that when you've spent, you know, a year, year and a half working on this project to to take that that outside look. And I think that's where it is, just becomes really valuable. Well, it, it's that too. It and the fact that in your head you you get how it should be. So yeah. so everything clicks in your head because you designed it. I mean, I go through the same thing like with me and, and my coworkers because I'm I'm in IT. So when we're coding, if something's broke, and if I'm looking at it and it's my code, I automatically see it the way it was supposed to be written because in my head, that's the way it's supposed to be written. Same with my coworkers. So sometimes it's either we walk away and come back and we see it right away, or you just go, come on over here for a second. And somebody will come over and look over your shoulder and go, well, idiot, this line two right here is like, oh, how did I not see that? And it's the same thing with game design process. You understand what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody coming off out of the blue, they're looking at it as it is. And, and that's just valuable. Oh, all around, definitely. All right. So, you know, let's, uh, let's go ahead and we've danced around it a bit here. We've talked about lessons and, and we've talked about how you've got this nice rich world kind of built that we get to, uh, play in here soon. So oh, yeah. why don't you give us your, uh, high level pitch for Clash Dawn of Steam? Okay. So Clash Dawn of Steam is an asymmetric, uh, strategy card game, asymmetric meaning that the motives of both players are different. They have different win conditions. Um, kind of keeps both sides slightly different in how they play. It just it feels a little bit different. It's like two, two different experiences built into the one game. And I, I think that that really, I'd like to see that open up more in the future in that as far as you know, asymmetric gameplay, um, just in other games even besides Clash. So the game, it's sort of deck building. There's some uh, resource management. Actually, I'd say heavy resource management. Uh, heavy risk assessment in that you you always see uh, exactly like if they're about to score you you never get blindsided essentially in this game this isn't one of those games where they play something from their hand and just win it's like they play it you see it you realize okay i have two turns to stop this thing before i lose the game now i need to do everything that i can possibly do to stop that and bring this game back in my favor and and that is something that i tried to keep in it really from the start. Uh, another thing I tried to put in it is we wanted it to be sort of rules light. So it's playable with significant others. It's playable with, uh, you know, children, easy to teach to people. We definitely wanted to keep that, uh, that barrier to learn and barrier to entry low so that people could just jump right into it. The game is uh, every time you buy a box set, it's everything you need for two players to play. There's no, I buy a deck. Now none of my friends have a deck and I can't play. It's like you have the entire game there. Just play it. It's that simple. <laughs> this is one that I recently did put out a preview video for. So I got to sit down and play Clash. And uh, I had, uh, and Jordan sat down with me as well. 
and uh, we had a lot of fun with it. It, it was a great game, and I, I do love the asymmetric style of it. The artwork is great. Uh, it's 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 absolutely amazing. There's a good the the fluff that you put together in the in the uh, review copies and stuff was enough to that's where I want why I wanted to ask you about how much you've got built out because I can see even the fluff around this being worth checking out and getting into the world and reading you know what you're doing to try you know because you're trying to either completely trash a setting or save a setting and yeah. you kind of get to know the you, there's a little bit of a story on the back of the cards about the setting that you're either trashing or saving and uh you know the the characters and and the characters are very specific it's, it's not like a generic character that you're getting you're you're getting a named character yep. that's either a champion or a herald and you know i i, I know there's backstory there as well and it's oh. It all comes together really, really nice. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I don't want to jump around, but uh, <laughs> the story really evolved when I brought Daniel on, uh, the writer. And I um, originally, I had intended to do all of the writing myself. Um, and then I realized just how much I had on my plate as it was. And that that, that was just not going to be an option. And to keep the production value as, as high as I wanted it to be, I, I needed to bring in someone else, someone who really knew what they were doing, who who understood character development, who understood, um, you know, uh, the peak of the conflict and understood that you need an antagonist. You need all of these different assets in your story to make it, make you want to keep reading. So Daniel really, really took it to the next level. And I've really uh, been enjoying our kind of brainstorm sessions on the world because he really brings a fresh approach to it, to these ideas that have just been kind of swimming around in my head for the last year, year and a half maybe longer as far as the ideas, he's just really helped me process them into what could could really tell a good story. And, and that's been just so much fun to go into all of the different factions. And really something that we've tried to keep from the start is though you have Champions of Hope and Heralds of Fear, which would seem very light and dark, good versus bad, really there's very few characters in the game that are just strictly evil and strictly bad. A lot of these characters they have a good side and you can relate to them if you read their short stories. I think the only one that people have a hard time relating to is Zaraza. And that's just because he's possessed by a super ancient evil entity. So he doesn't have too much upside, but, <laughs> but the rest of them all have even uh, you know, like Brea talk Zhao. He's the, the lion lion type man. He's a monk. He's the primarch of the Island nation Eden. And Eden is very much that sort of, uh, Indians versus cowboys type, uh, anti-industrialism kind of theme put into it where they just want to live all by themselves on their island. But then with the invention of airships, now they're never going to be safe because where they were protected before, because it was way too far to travel via, uh, you know, a navy with, uh, ships. Now that with the invention of airships, everyone and their brother is coming to invade them and steal their resources. So now he's had to make the decision to kind of mobilize the forces of Eden and start getting active and going out and pillaging and plundering and, you know, just uh, getting the resources required to fortify his his nation so that someone just doesn't come and take it from him. And I, I think that these stories just make it really a blast uh, to kind of get into. Yeah, I, I like where you're kind of going with this. I like the the shades of gray instead of, you know, the the solid black and white of each character. And that was one of the things, again, uh, you know, we didn't have as much as of the backstory in a review copy, but when yeah. we were looking at the, you know, champions of hope and Herald of fear, we were kind of like, well, you know, these Herald of fear, these actually look like pretty shiny, happy people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And, and, uh, just kind of, you know, one of the, uh, champions of hope looks like, he could possibly be a herald of fear in a bad day. <laughs> yeah, uh, I definitely know. You're probably talking about Panstrom Swiftra. Yeah. The, uh, the kind of crow mask, for those of you who are new to the project, uh, crow mask type alchemist character. He, he has a very uh, dread aura. And um, yeah, he he is good only in the sense that I guess he still has a conscience. He's not willing to just wipe out an entire city just willy nilly. Um, and that kind of comes through in his short story as well. And that, kind of dark presence, but still a little bit of light in there. So, you know, let me ask you a question, because I know you've been hearing it a lot lately, and I did it as well, and, and I uh, mentioned it in the video, but how do you feel about 
so many people mentioning Clash Dawn of Steam and kind of paralleling it at times to Netrunner. You know, I'm not upset about the comparison. I love Netrunner, personally. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that in, in the interview, but, but I really like Netrunner. We play Netrunner probably once a week, and it, it's an awesome game. I mean, how can you go wrong with Richard Garfield designing anything? I mean, Kings of Tokyo, Magic the Gathering, Netrunner, these are huge titles. So that comparison isn't, it's not a negative thing to me. I I feel like, you know, if Clash of Autumn Steam can be compared even in the same paragraph as as Netrunner, that's not so bad. Yeah, and I know when I did it, and I think I even said it in the the video, that it was definitely not a bad thing. I mean, I was comparing it to games that I really love and enjoy. And, I, you know, we're huge Netrunner fans yeah. uh, at All Us Geeks. And, you know, Jordan and I play Netrunner. It's one of our games that we, when when we're looking to just unwind and want to pull out something personally, Netrunner is one of those games. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I got to tell you, there's, I mean, when we were playing Clash, we were right there. We were We were in that moment again. We were having fun. I instantly was like, I wonder what the other two factions are like. Yeah. Kind of thing, you know, after playing with the review copy. So it's definitely not a bad thing, at least in, in our minds to have that parallel because it's one more game that scratches that itch, but in a very different way, right? Because I mean, the comparison is mostly over the asymmetric game style play and and that you know your your champion is doing something slightly different than the herald is doing or your yeah. end objectives are different and you've got that in in that runner as well but from there you're looking at now it's it the the themes are completely different and the yeah. fluff around it is completely different and the uh resource management is completely different i mean there there's there's stuff that's different it's not like anybody could go out there and say that this is a copy of one or the other it's they just scratch a similar itch in very different ways and that's a that's a good thing yeah i i would definitely agree i think that in netrunner a lot of times you're it becomes about spending uh, spending uh, what is it credits spending credits to uh, break through ice and to steal things right whereas clash it's more of uh, about the rolling of dice and uh, playing the right cards to kind of modify your dice and put you in the best position possible to do what you need to do. To me, that's it, it shares uh, a lot of similarities with you know more war games even, but people probably won't see that comparison really nearly as much. But in my opinion, at least, I've drawn heavily on many of those war gaming type mechanics, you know, just rolling handfuls of dice and trying to get hits on certain trigger numbers and such. Yeah, and I actually like that in this game. There are some people that, you know, don't want any randomness in their game at all, but yeah. once you're playing a card game, I mean, your your deck is shuffled and all. I mean, there there's always a certain amount of randomness. Yeah. But the sweet spot for me, and I think I said this in the video too, the sweet spot for me for that style of randomness is when it is in a battle style mechanic where it's a fight and I'm all right with kind of almost the tension around, you know, the, the dice rolls and if you'll make enough hits and that kind of thing. And then on top of that, having that style of randomness in it, you have ways and you've put ways in the game to mitigate some of your roles. Yeah. And and from the start, that was, that was a big thing. I just, you know, we didn't want it to just feel like you were rolling dice and at the whim of the dice, it was always supposed to be. Like the dice were there and they could, they could have that crazy swing and really just, uh, put a, put a pitchfork in you and you're done. But we also wanted it to be where, uh, you know, just, just that kind of that tension. That's what we've heard from a lot of play testers. A lot of the reviewers is just, they say that when they play this game, it's, it's very tense because you're, you have, you've done everything you can do. And now you're just like, all right, don't let this guy get six hits on six dice, <laughs> you know? And, and and that's kind of like uh, I don't know, I I like that tension in a game. I think it, it makes it um makes it a little bit stressful, but still a lot of fun, even when things go crazy. I like the fact that you've you've got that gamble too. Uh, well, not necessarily gamble. It's it's what you it's your calculated risk on how much to weaken your personal champion or herald 
to make your dice better, but then leave them open to potential direct attacks if you can't keep minions or allies in front of them. So, I mean, it's, it's all that, it's all those little things that you've got to kind of make decisions about along the way. And, uh, I know like right now you're testing a few things that may even add a a few more decisions in there for you if you really need to make them uh, and you're, uh, resource tight. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just from, uh, even I think you said it and some other people said it. And so we're really considering uh, a change, just not really even a change, just an additional rule, uh, where people can, if they do get, you know, shorted on resource resources, then they can, um, you know, get discard a card was one of the ideas to get half its resources yep. or even you know, skip your turn to get some set amount of resources. So we're going to be doing a bunch of play testing this weekend to kind of see which idea we like the best and then go from there. Yeah, I gave you, I know I gave you two, one in my video and then one when we were talking when I wasn't as tired as, <laughs> as when I recorded the videos. Yeah. Cause I think I did like four or five videos straight that night. Oh yeah. It's easy. <laughs> And then I saw you got some on the on the, your comment section too. But what I like about all of the comments now, obviously, and I I think I told you this when I gave you the last one. Here here's an idea, but you are obviously going to have to be the one to go play test. I mean, it's it's off the top of my head. It's not like I've played it out. Yeah. So obviously, you know that, and that's what you're talking about doing is play testing them and see what they they uh, come back with and what the feel is like. But the thing I like about the three that I've seen is that. You're still, you're sacrificing something. So if you, if you make that decision, you're sacrificing something. Yeah. And, and we definitely want to keep that involved. There's, there's a heavy uh, risk to reward ratio in Clash of Honor's team. And we want to keep that a big part of the game yeah. where, you know, you're, you, you're taking a big risk and hopefully it turns into a big payoff, but there's the chance that it won't. Right. And that's, that's one of the things, even like the, the discard one I gave you is like, yeah, I can get rid of a big card and get a, you know, a, a significant amount of crystals right now, but I'm getting rid of a big card that I might yeah. want to use later. So yeah. it, it just all of and that one. And like I said, the other two that I know you've got, I mean, that's that I like that. And I think that really is a good thing to, to have in there is that you, it's not just something that you get to do. There is some penalty for it, but you're not crystal shorted if, if you get into that position. Oh yeah. You it, can get yourself out of the corner. It might hurt. It might bleed a little bit, but you can get yourself out of the corner. Yeah. And I mean, it, and it's not even in, in every game kind of thing where you're no. going to get shorted on resources, but you know, one in 10 games, there's a chance. And, we tried to mitigate that with the mulligan as well so that, you know, you, you get an idea of if your starting hand is going to be good enough to sustain you, at least for the first couple turns. Uh, some people were saying in the comments section of the campaign that uh, currently in the rulebook, it says for competitive play that when you mulligan, you have to discard your hand. Right. We're saying that that was a little bit tough to take that kind of a hit right at the start. And so we were kind of thinking, you know, we were saying, letting people know that if you're playing casually, do it however you'd like, you know? Mulligan your hand as many times as you want, as many times as okay with your opponent. But we're just those, that was simply just for like the competitive side of things. If we're ever doing, you know, grand tournaments at Gen Con and stuff like that, we want to keep it, you know, pretty competitive. We want to, we want to promote that kind of competitive play. And by sending out like tournament kits with play mats and things and alternate art cards, just cool extra stuff. Right. And, you know, I, I think I said that in the video as well. And I think some other people said too, is that, you know, it, it, it is not an every game kind of thing. And it's not, you know, going back to the Netrunner thing, I've been credit short on several games that you play it enough. You're going to hit that yeah. where, where you're not getting your credits in. And it just happened to be that in our plays, one of the games that we had was I was playing the champion. I was getting low on crystals and. Jordan had basically pulled a bunch of the, I forget what the card is now, but the, the one where he discards one of my cards and he just takes the one off the top of his, 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 uh, deck. Yeah. So he had a bunch of those in his hand though. So every time I saved up for a resource eventually to put it back out, he yanked it again. Cause all right, uh, let, let's be honest. Jo- everybody know anybody that listens to the regular podcast or has heard Jordan and I talk, we do whatever we can to screw each other over. And that's, that's absolutely. part of our fun. Yeah, that's, that's, I think a lot of gaming groups and, you know, some games we've even had to ban from playing because it just gets too heated. You know, like, uh, Settlers of Catan, we get really livid when we play that game. So we've had to shelf that for about the last six months. <laughs> 
So yeah, it's cool that you're taking the the feedback, especially since you are still in the early Kickstarter phase. Where, uh, you know, I I know a lot of designers. And in fact, I just talked to Chevy not that long ago, and he's basically said, until I hit that button, until I have the order in, uh, the community, if the community wants it and it makes sense for the game, I'm going to put it in. So uh, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. And with with us, um, me me doing graphic design professionally. I've really tried to definitely uh, to integrate that, and nothing is finalized. Since I can do the graphic design, I don't have to pay someone and then have it set and then you know pay them again to change it. Everything really is totally uh, up in the air still. We can still change just about anything. I mean, the characters, yeah, those are those are pretty set. We have a lot of uh, a lot of stuff put into them, but you know, some of the cards, for example, they can still be repurposed or. Whatever the community wants as a whole, if they feel that it'll make the game better, then I'm all for listening to the community and, and the player base. And I, I think that it, it's kind of foolish to not do that. Even uh, to, to bring it back to wargaming, there was, there was a time, I don't know how many years ago exactly, maybe five or six years ago, where Games Workshop was really being pretty tyrannical about all kinds of stuff. And then Privateer Press kind of shows up, sort of a, a white knight appearing in the distance, and they're just... <laughs> Being phenomenal in every way. They're reaching out to their players on their forums. You know, you're, you get a mispack. You could just email them and they'll send it out to you the next day free. It's like they were just doing all of these things right. And it, and it created this huge switch. And ever since I, I saw that, I've just wanted to strive to that level of customer service and that level of uh, just tending to the player base. Because that's what supports the community. And that's what builds that sense of community, in my opinion. Right. But stressing with filters. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, definitely. I can't take every person's advice. Some people, I, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but yeah, not all advice is the best. <laughs> I know it's it's always got to be it's always got to be filtered. But uh, take taking it in and and running it through the filter is awesome because there are people that don't even go that far. So yeah, when you're that available to your customer base. Uh, and you kind of empower them as well, then they're along for the ride. They, they have that sense of we're doing this together and that's always good for you. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to all of the awesome backers. I, I mean, the backers for this campaign have just been tremendous in posting comments and just being active in the community of the game and in the spirit of the game. I mean, there's been people, you know, sharing the game everywhere and making polls and, you know, just, just doing all kinds of awesome things above and beyond that really it's just awesome to see as, as the lead designer of the game, just to see people kind of taking to it like that. It's just, it's been so awesome. All right. Uh, we're getting, we're getting to that point where I got to ask you, uh, one of the questions I've been asking quite a bit a lot. Okay. And actually, I think I'm going to ask you another one when I get, when I get done with that now that I think about it. Yes. But let's say somebody's found your page. They're checking it out. And they're on the fence. They're like, ah, this might be a game I'm interested in, but I'm not quite sure. Give me a, you know, a couple things that you would tell somebody to get them to turn around and go, you're right. I definitely have to back this today. Yeah. So I would encourage people, if, if you're the kind of person who likes RPG gaming, who likes immersion into a world, I would say definitely look through our updates because in the campaign updates, we have short stories galore from Daniel. It really, I don't know how many people have really gone through and read all of them outside of myself and a couple backers, but they're awesome. And it, and if you just read those, they'll really give you this feel where you want to learn more about the game. Uh, another thing I would probably say is the art is awesome. Our artists are just tremendous, like phenomenal world-class artists all around. Um, they, they've just been doing some awesome stuff and it just continues to get better and better. So we probably haven't even seen the best art yet for the game. It's still forthcoming. So that, and we also chose to emphasize the cards with a, a design light type interface. Um, so it, it, we've gone for more of the full art type cards where you're not hiding all of the art, you know, 80% of it behind filler design space, but instead it's on showcase. Which I absolutely love, by the way. I, I love the, the full art style on the cards. Yeah, and that was one of those things that we posted on Board Game Geek and people, the results were so tremendous and the, the response was so tremendous that we had to go with it. It, it was like, okay, well, these people, we, we put up a poll of three different things and the one, you know, ran away with it like 50 votes and the other had like four. So I was like, yeah, we have to do this now. <laughs> it's obviously a good idea. Uh, and then I love it as well. I, mean, I, I might even be the biggest fan of the art 
personally, I, I don't know if, if I am, maybe there's someone out there who loves it more, but I, I love going back and forth with these artists and just, uh, you know, fleshing out these characters. And, and Daniel's a big part of that too, uh, in, in fleshing these characters out. And it's just been really cool to see the cards coming to life in his stories. And then even the, the characters coming to life via the art, just the whole process of breathing life into this whole world has been tremendous. It's been really awesome. All right. You know, that just made me think of something else. Daniel is not in California, correct? Uh, no, he's not. He's, he's one of the remote. How has that been? I mean, you, it's, so you brought a couple, you know, you've got your, like you said, the three amigos, your, you guys have been friends. Yep. How has it been bringing somebody else, not only into your world to help you shape it, but in among three friends and remotely? I mean, how, how has that been going for you as a company? Well, it's really been great. I have to say Daniel is just fantastic. Uh, at first, I, when we first started, I would give him these really kind of detailed prompts on what I envisioned in my head because I wasn't quite sure how our relationship would work out. And as he was writing the stories, it's really become more of kind of this free form creative process where I'm open to hearing what he has to say totally. You know, nothing is just, this is in cement. It's like, well, if you think that this would make the character more compelling, then maybe we can do it. And I think that that has really helped take the project just like I probably said before, but to, to the next level is just having that extra creative mind with the emphasis on storytelling. And I really want the game, even though it is a card game, generally you don't have that, that kind of world building and like world uh, immersion in a card game, but I really want that to be a big part of the game. I want people who were, I mean, obviously it's not for everyone. Some people could just pick up the game and just play it casually, you know, not care about the characters at all, but. For the people who are interested in it, I want them to be able to learn all about the characters that they're playing and in the places that they're playing around, you know, the whole world. And I, I think that it's a really interesting world with the, the evolution and how it's going to evolve. I like to call it uh, an evolving world, an evolving fantasy landscape, because it's, it's just going to be constantly changing. And as the waves come out, it's going to be progressively leaning more and more industrial. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Okay. And actually, you just kind of touched on what my next question was going to kind of be, but when we get Clash Dawn of Steam out there, what is the plan beyond this project? Yeah, well, we have some very awesome things in the works, already working on um, some kind of like chaotic dwarf type faction from up in the, up in the Northlands. Uh, I think their their homeland is called the Freljords, and they kind of live mainly, you know, in the cavernous kind of a citadels that they have underground but they're they're very keen on inventing and to keep those furnaces that they have to process the magic they have to go out and invade a lot of people to, to fuel that and we have a, a, a couple more awesome factions planned out i don't want to spoil too much but i would also let folks know that like werewolves there will be a werewolf faction and we're currently playtesting it so if you're a big werewolf fan keep your fingers crossed and your eyes open for more stuff in that vein we also have an expansion that we're playtesting and playtesting for about four months now uh, that will be an AI run deck called an Ultimate Evil deck that will allow players to kind of co-op first this Ultimate Evil deck. And, and the cool thing about that is that you can take a Champion of Hope and a Herald of Fear, and this Ultimate Evil deck is such a big threat to the world of Assyria at large that they both have to team up against it. Nice. So that that's pretty exciting in itself. Yeah, I like it. That would be awesome. All right, so uh, it's kind of sounds like for the immediate future anyway, Mad Ape Games is pretty much uh, entrenched in the Clash Dawn of Steam universe for now. Do you have plans above and beyond the Clash stuff that you're going to look into uh, at, when you get to a breathing point? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, like I was saying, Johnny and Tony both have their own worlds that they're currently building and their own... Uh, you know, everything that goes along with that, but I won't spoil everything, but one of them that we have planned is actually a, a prison break style board game. Um, it's going to be, we're really think leaning towards sci-fi at this point. Um, in that traditional, you know, like you wake up in this giant space prison and you have nothing. So now go out and explore this and, it, and really make it very, very, um, seated in, in RPG style of a game where you're getting new equipment and getting all this new awesome stuff and exploring and upgrading and doing all of that. Also a little bit of worker placement on the horizon. Um, so just some all sorts all across the board. Okay. We want to be making games that everyone can enjoy. You know, we'll have something for everyone, whether it's 
Euro games, uh, you know, Ameritrash card games, <laughs> just whatever you want to play. We want to put it out there with the highest possible production quality. Well, we are getting towards the end of our time here. So what I want to tell everybody, one, of course, as always, check the show notes. There will be links in the show notes. But uh, we also, you don't even have to check the show notes if you don't want to. Just go over to allusgeeks.com if you need to. And we have a Clash Dawn of Steam ad on the website, so you can click over from there. Uh, Jared is kind enough to take out a little ad on the website. But right now, Clash Dawn of Steam. They are looking for $18,500, currently a little over $10,000, and this is going until the morning of May 1st, 2014. Again, we've played it. We like it. We've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, we do have a preview video out there. I will put that link in as well into our show notes if you want to go check that out. But go check out Clash, Dawn of Steam. Jared, thank you for hanging out with me, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to just chat about the world and the world of uh, geekiness at large. <laughs> no problem. Uh, anything you want to uh, make sure, that, is there anything we haven't touched on or something you want to leave the listeners with before we take off? I think we've touched on most everything. If if I had to leave with one thing, I would say if if you are an aspiring game designer, get out there, start posting on the Facebook groups. I mean, don't be, don't be crazy on those groups because people will bury you, but, <laughs> but, you know, be reasonable and people will give you reasonable responses. And, and if you just are open to that feedback, whatever you're doing will, will really be taken to the next level and your ceiling will just be raised by the, the presence of those other awesome people. All so right. I, that's my main thing. Nice. Excellent. All right. Once again, thanks, Jared, for hanging out with me. And everybody, I will be coming to you again with more interviews in the very near future. So thanks for hanging out. Yeah, thanks. This podcast is a proud member of the GeekCast Network. If you enjoyed it and are looking for other podcasts with a geek culture slant, head over to geekcastnetwork.com, where you will find podcasts such as Almost Podcast a fan-driven companion podcast for the Almost Human television show, The Geek Cast Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at geekcastnetwork.com.